meeting will come to order. Welcome to the January 2024 regular meeting unmuted. of the Local Agency Formation Commission. I am Vice Chair Jackie Fielder. I'm joined by Commissioners Dean Preston, Hope Williams, and Shanti Singh. Our clerk today is Elisa Somera, and I'd like to thank the staff at SFGov TV for broadcasting this meeting. Madam Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, Madam Vice Chair. LAFCO is convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. Public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, and then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. If you wish to provide public comment remotely, the call-in information is scrolling across your screen. When connected, you'll hear the meeting discussions, which you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak and those on the telephone should dial star three to be added to the speaker's queue. If you are on the telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. You can email them to myself, the clerk, at alisa.somera at sfgov.org, or you may submit written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office at City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. If you submit written public comment, it will be forwarded to the commissioners and included as part of the official file. Madam Vice Chair, that concludes my communications. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And can you please call the roll? Yes, on the, uh, the roll, Chair Chan, Chan absent. Vice Chair Fielder. Here. Fielder present. Commissioner Preston. Preston, present. Commissioner Williams. Present. Williams, present. Commissioner Singh. Singh, present. Madam Vice Chair, you have a quorum. Thank you. And Madam Clerk, can you please call item number two? Yes, item number two is approval of the LAFCO minutes from the November 17th, 2023 regular meeting. Any commissioners have any changes to the minutes from the November 17th, 2023 meeting? Seeing no changes, I'll open this up for public comment. Speakers will have two minutes. Seeing no one here in person, we will go to the speaker's queue to see if we have anyone on the line. We have Jaime uh, monitoring the line for us. And Madam Chair, there are no speakers. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Is there a motion to approve the minutes? Moved by Commissioner Preston. Is there a second? Second. Seconded by Commissioner Williams. Madam Clerk, can you please call the roll? On item number two, Vice Chair Fielder. Yes, aye. Fielder, aye. Commissioner Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Commissioner Williams. Aye. Williams, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. Uh, Madam Clerk, can you please call item number three? Yes, item number three is an update on the Clean Power SF program, including activities and LAFCO updates on battery storage and green financing studies. Members of the public wish to provide comment on this item. Should line up to speak or press star three if you're joining us remotely. Madam Chair, Madam Vice Chair. Thank you. We'll now hear from Deputy Assistant General Manager for Clean Power SF, Michael Himes. And if you can please keep your presentation to 10 minutes, that would be appreciated. Good morning, uh, LAFCO Commissioners. Mike Himes. I'm the Deputy Assistant General Manager uh, at the SFPUC uh, Power Enterprise responsible for Clean Power SF. Uh, happy Friday. Um, I do have some slides. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I see that they're up. Um, let's see, for my report today, I'm going to provide our usual update on Clean Power SF customer enrollment and service statistics. 
I'll provide an update on our customer program offerings uh, and those that are under development. Also share some information about a credit support authorization that's coming to the Board of Supervisors soon. Um, and as you're probably aware, we recently had a pg e rate increase uh, that went into effect on January 1st. Uh, so I'll, I'll share some information about that. And lastly, in anticipation of customer questions about energy bills this time of year, we have a webinar scheduled next week uh, that I wanted to make sure you all were aware of. Clean Power SF continues to successfully serve our customers. Participation in our program remains stable with an opt-out rate at about 4.4%. Uh, this is actually a bit better than when we reported last in, in November. Our super green participation rate is also stable and super green energy sales now represent more than 12% of Clean Power SF's annual retail sales. Turning to our customer, uh, our Clean Power SF customer programs, here is the table that we've shown you in the past. This identifies our operating programs and new pro programs under development. I'm not gonna go through all of the operating programs uh, that we've covered in previous meetings, but I did wanna highlight activities on our new programs under development. Uh, first, I have mentioned in the past that we were working on an e-mobility program. And I'm happy to say that is coming to fruition. Later this quarter, we will be announcing the launch of a new e-bike incentive program for Clean Power SF and Hetch Hetchy Power customers. The program uh, will provide a point of sale instant rebate of $1,000 for the purchase of a new e-bike from, from participating bike shops here in the city. The program is targeted at assisting qualifying low-income customers residing within equity priority communities with purchasing a new e-bike. Uh, equity priority communities is a designation used by local transit agencies that includes consideration of transit issues in addition to other factors that could be considered disadvantaged or vulnerable now and in the future. Qualifying customers will receive an email and a postcard from Clean Power SF with information on how to apply uh, for and obtain a $1,000 coupon. The postcard will be in multiple languages and we'll be providing language service, service lines uh, if folks need help applying. Customers then head to a participating bike shop uh, to purchase the bike uh, at which time the bike shop will provide a discount equivalent to the full rebate amount. Retailers will then receive payment for the rebate amount from Clean Power SF for each qualifying sale. We're really excited to announce that we have two retail, retailers signed up for the program and we're in discussions with more. Uh, we're, we're just generally excited about this new program um, and we hope that it'll offer a new efficient and sustainable form of urban mobility to those who could use it most. Um, we're also continuing work on the energy efficiency for food services and disadvantaged communities, community solar programs. Both of these program areas are still in the RFP phase. We anticipate 
issuing the Food Services Energy Efficiency RFP to obtain the services of a program implementer this spring. And if we're successful in obtaining that implementer, we'll expect, um, we expect to be able to offer the program in the fourth quarter of this year. We've also been preparing a solicitation to develop a community solar project uh, or projects for the Disadvantaged Communities Program. We're currently waiting on the California Public Utilities Commission to issue a decision on a number of policy and program design issues impacting that program. So we, uh, we're expecting to see a decision from the California PUC soon, um, and given the lead time for soliciting and then constructing a project, we're currently projecting that that community solar program would begin operating in the 2025-2026 timeframe. So that was programs. Um, shifting gears for a moment, no pun intended. I wanted to share some information with you about an important upcoming action we have before the Board of Supervisors. Um, since the city began serving customers under Clean Power SF, the SFPUC has maintained a bank credit agreement to secure some of Clean Power SF's financial obligations. The credit agreement provides Clean Power SF with the ability to issue standby letters of credit to secure payment obligations under some of our power purchase agreements. A standby letter of credit is essentially a promise from a bank that it'll cover a specified amount of our financial obligations under a contract if Clean Power SF is unable to perform. In our current environment, standby letters of credit are a more cost-effective and efficient way for Clean Power SF uh, to post collateral and address its financial security obligations. Uh, Clean Power SF has, has also used standby letters of credit to meet the financial security requirements established by the California Public Utilities Commission to operate as a community choice aggregation program. Under the CPUC's rules, the financial security requirement is a collateral posting to PG&E to cover a portion of the costs it would incur if the city was to involuntarily return Clean Power SF customers to PG&E for generation supply. So you can think of the financial security requirement as insurance in case we are no longer able to operate the program. If that were to happen, PG&E would be able to draw from the letter of credit up to the amount specified to help it cover the additional cost of serving customers transferred back to it. The Board of Supervisors has previously authorized the general manager of the PUC to enter into bank credit agreements for Clean Power SF up to $150 million in credit capacity. However, that authority is expiring. So the SFPUC is bringing legislation to the board to extend its authorization uh, to the general manager of the PUC to enter into future bank credit agreements for the same amount, up to $150 million of capacity for 10 years. And uh, we're scheduled to present this item to the Budget and Finance Committee next week on the 24th. Okay, now to energy bills. As uh, has been well covered in the news lately, on November 16th, the California PUC approved significant electric rate changes for PG&E. New rate changes for PG&E's electric generation, transmission, and distribution services went into effect on January 1st. 
so this increase means that as of the first, PG&E customers will experience a rate increase, including those that receive electricity generation services from CCA programs like Clean Power SF. Clean Power SF customers are impacted by this rate increase because they receive transmission and distribution and other services from PG&E. The typical PG&E residential customer bill is expected to increase by over $30 per month in 2024. Uh, and this is for both electricity and gas combined. PG&E has asserted that it needs these rate increases to make several changes to ensure the safety and reliability of its energy services. The top drivers of PG&E's uh, of this particular rate increase are inflation and significant investments in undergrounding electric lines to decrease wildfire risk. Despite these increases, Clean Power SF customers will continue to see savings on their bills relative to taking PG&E generation service. We estimate that the average residential customer will see about an $8 per month saving on Clean Power SF generation service relative to PG&E. In addition to these recent rate increases, the colder, darker months of the year often lead to higher bills in San Francisco. To help San Franciscans better understand and read their energy bills and to share information on better managing these costs, we're offering a free one-hour webinar next Thursday on January 25th at 10 a.m. Folks joining the webinar can expect to learn how seasonal changes impact their energy usage and bills, uh, how to read energy bills and navigate the rates and charges posted on the bill, and they'll learn ways to save energy in the wintertime and reduce bill costs. We'll be offering a Q&A session with our subject matter experts. So if you've ever had a question about your electricity bill, this webinar is for you. We hope you'll attend, but if you can't, we plan to record it and post it uh, on the web. So, um, and I, I've provided here on this slide uh, the web address to RSVP for the webinar if you're interested. And that concludes my uh, prepared uh, remarks and happy to take any questions you might have. Thank you so much, Mr. Himes. Um, Commissioner Williams. Thank you, Mr. Himes, um, for making me laugh today. That was great. Your puns were on point. Um, is there anything about the net energy metering tariffs that are on your radar, the virtual net metering for multifamily homes and renters through the CPUC? Does that ring any bells? Yeah, there, well, so there have been, there have been a number of changes made um, at the California Public Utilities Commission to net energy metering. Um, last year, there was a, a pretty big decision that came out uh, effectively ending net energy metering and creating a new way to compensate customers for the solar that they generate and deliver to the grid. I think that what you're referring to is a current, an active proceeding to address um, this sort of uh, modified version of net metering for multifamily. And um, we do have a team tracking it. I don't have like a current update for you on it and where, where it's headed. Um, 
but I think generally speaking, the CPUC is trying to address uh, you know, this, the similar issues to what it addressed before around um, subsidization of, of solar customers and uh, you know, essentially trying to create a more s sustainable model for scaling solar in the future. Thank you. Yeah, I'm kind of piecing this together. There was a pretty rushed coalition last year and they were raising some pretty severe alarm bells. I wonder, it kind of sounded like they weren't, they were going to have residents pay to use the energy generated by the solar on their roofs. So I wonder if that is part of the subsidy. Yeah, I was just curious if you, and it sounds like your team's already on it. So thank you. Yeah, and um, you know, after the meeting, I'll, I'll touch base with my team, and if I have any, um, any particular updates, I can share with the executive officer. Thank you so much. Yeah. Commissioner Singh. Yeah, I know, I know sometimes talking about the CPUC is like, I don't want to make you <laughs> recite the Odyssey, Mr. Himes, but I was curious as to, to, to Community Solar, like exactly what regulatory changes were, or decisions were waiting on them for. Yeah, so the California PUC probably a couple of years ago opened a new proceeding uh, to address um, like a suite of programs uh, specifically focused at uh, offering sort of green tariff alternatives to customers um, and when they did that, they included, they sort of swept under that proceeding the green, the community, the disadvantaged uh, communities, green tariff and community solar, those are two things, uh, programs that they had previously adopted for sort of review and consideration sort of as a whole. Um, and when they did that, uh, they, um, in a number of parties participated, in, including uh, Clean Power SF and sort of a coalition of other CCAs that are running these programs. Our interest in that was, you know, to sort of ensure that the program could could continue to run and run, um, you know, be stable. Also, simplify it a little bit. Um, the original program design the CPUC created was pretty complicated, and and I think not every program that is being offered is, is sort of running well because of that. Um, one of the things that relates to the, to the RFP and like sort of what we're pausing on is the eligibility of projects and their location. Um, the, 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 the CPUC rules today require that the project has to be um, built within a state-designated disadvantaged community. Um, one of the things that, that we're finding as we try to um, realize the community solar program is that those are kind of arbitrary, in, in a sense they're arbitrary, right? And even good sites that might be across the street from a census tract that qualifies would not be eligible. So um, one of, among several things, one of the things that we've asked and that affects this program is to create a little bit more flexibility in, the, in locating these projects so that we can really pursue the most optimal cost-effective projects for this program. So that right there is really the key thing that we're waiting for. 
Um, I will say though that in this program, the CPUC is even considering maybe moving away from this whole program design. So, you know, we're kind of waiting patiently to understand <laughs> which direction it's going to go. Um, and we were anticipating a proposed decision last September. So we've been waiting for a bit. Got it. I kind of had a feeling. Thanks. That, that answered my question exactly. But um, Thank you so much, Mr. Himes, for your presentation. I have a few questions. The first one is, what is the process for securing the letters of credit? Is that an RFP process? Yes, uh, we have issued an RFP in the, in the past to secure a participating bank. Who is our current participating bank? JP Morgan. Got it. Thank you. Um, and that is for $150 million? Yeah, th so the authority is for up to $150 million, but we actually haven't entered into an agreement for that much capacity um, to date. Mm -hmm. uh, the largest facility or bank agreement that we've entered into has been for $75 million. We recently reduced, somewhat recently, maybe two years ago, uh, reduced the, the capacity under the agreement to $20 million. Um, however, we're also waiting on another California PUC decision um, that is going to change the financial security requirement that I spent a little bit of time talking about. Um, and we are anticipating that that change is going to significantly increase our posting requirements. Um, we don't know exactly by how much. We have kind of a range, but on the upper end of that range, it starts to get up near $100 million. So, um, you know, having the flexibility in, in sort of establishing that credit um, facility cap is, is helpful for us so that we can respond to these kinds of regulatory requirements in a, you know, a quick way. Right. And these are large numbers we're talking about. So um, I imagine that smaller credit unions and community banks are probably ineligible. Yeah, they, they also, yeah, they, they need to um, be capitalized to a certain degree and then also you know, have an investment grade credit rating the bank itself. So um, those are some of the, the criteria. I'm not an expert in this space, um, and our um, capital finance director will be presenting this to the board next week. Um, but this is also, you know, it, it's not a space that, like, has a deep roster of banks participating. Mm -hmm. Yep, as with a lot of municipal finance. Okay, well, thank you for, for yep. that. And then... Um, my other questions have to do with the PG&E outages of this month. I was wondering, what is the effect on our revenue? You know, how much are we losing every time we have a PG&E power outage? Or do we have um, a system of, of record keeping or outcomes to measure that? Is PG&E reimbursing us or customers? Uh, no, PG&E does not reimburse us for outages. Um, we don't have, so I will say that generally speaking, the outages, while they certainly negatively affect our customers and an outage of any duration is an outage that can have significant uh, impacts to our customers' well-being. Um, you know, history shows that they typically don't last very long and they're very, fairly rare. Um, 
So from a sort of financial standpoint, they don't have a significant impact on our program. Um, and I, I think part of the issue, of course, is the power is not flowing. So there's no usage to measure. Um, but it's not really, I guess, I, you know, it's not an issue that has come up, this question of sort of reimbursement. Um, and that, that's part of the reason is just because, um, you know, in, in aggregate to our program, the financial impacts are, are relatively minor. Got it. Thank you. Um, and then secondly related, does pg and &E offer us a report after power outages, you know, the cause of the outage, what they're doing to prevent future outages? No. The um, PG&E is required for outages that meet certain thresholds to file a report with the California PUC. Uh, we do, though, through the Department of Emergency Services, receive notification when there are outages, I believe, impacting at least 1,000 customer locations. So we receive an email notification. It has a general description of the location of the outage, the number of customers affected, I believe the time uh, the outage began. Um, it'll indicate some, very briefly something about, um, you know, crews are uh, dispatched to, to address it. Um, it might have an estimate of when power is to be restored, and then we'll receive another notification when power is in fact restored and when. Got it. Thank you. I just, I ask these because I were, you know, this weekend we expect some big storms and this is only going to increase with climate chaos. And so I think it just behooves us as a, a deliverer of power to customers to ensure that we are keeping tabs of, of what PG&E is doing to prevent these outages, um, how they're making sure that, yes, absolutely, you know, elderly, disabled folks who rely on power are, um, are being kept safe, alive, and, yeah, absolutely concerned about PG&E's ability to continue to re provide us reliable power. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, uh, seeing no other points of discussion now, thank you so much, Mr. Himes. Now we'll hear from Executive Officer Jeremy Pollack and Policy Analyst Khaled Samurai with an update on LAFCO activities related to Clean Power SF. And if you can keep your presentation at 10 minutes, that would be appreciated. Great, thank you very much. Uh, good morning, Commissioners. Jeremy Pollack, LAFCO Executive Officer and SFGovTV. I'm going to share some slides through the, the Teams link that's coming up and have some uh, brief updates on the first two of the studies that we're undertaking as part of the MOU with the SFPUC. And that's, uh, I'm going to give a brief update on the battery storage study and then Mr. Samurai will give you an update on the green banking study. Um, yeah, SFGovTV, if you can share the slides through the, the Teams meeting, please. Great, thank you. Um, so at our last meeting in November, you all approved of uh, us uh, contracting with Arup International uh, to conduct the, the battery storage study. Um, as a reminder, we're using the Department of the Environment's existing contract with Arup uh, that sped up the procurement process. 
and uh, we've jumped into the project with um, a, a project team involving us, uh, IRUP, and SFPUC, and the Department of the Environment. Uh, we've had a kickoff meeting and having weekly uh, check-in meetings. Um, Arup has started by reviewing the San Francisco codes and, and policies on battery storage, and then the project team went over identifying the best comparable cities to look at for them to, to compare codes to, and uh, the, the list is here. We settled on uh, New York City, Austin, San Jose, Fremont, and Chicago, um, and Arup has a team of fire engineers that are, are working on that. They just, um, a couple of days ago, completed a first draft of the review of San Francisco, New York, and Austin's codes, and uh, the project team's reviewing that. And um, yeah, it's been a, a great process so far. Um, Arab's team is looking, um, has some really sharp fire engineers that have a lot of experience with this. Um, I'm gonna give a big thanks to uh, Barry Hooper from uh, the Department of the Environment has been uh, a really valuable resource on this. Um, and um, yeah, I think the next step is gonna be, um, we're looking at, um, uh, engaging with um, uh, industry and, and stakeholders to get their opinions on the, the process, looking at um, you know, the battery industry and contractors who are installing these kind of systems, and then going to be looking to engage with the Department of Building Inspection and the Fire Department, who are the, the permitting agencies for these kinds of battery storage. Um, and um, yeah, also wanted to thank from the SFPUC, uh, Daniel Young and Russell Stepp have been very helpful in this, um, in this process. And um, yeah, the, the project's on track to, to complete the first phase um, by the end of March and the final study by the end of April. Um, and um, yeah, and with that, I can turn things over to Mr. Samurai. I can give you an update on the green banking study. Hello, commissioners. Thank you for your time. Um, since we last met, um, the biggest update that I'm happy to report is that Supervisor Preston has asked the uh, City Attorney's Office to prepare an ordinance to actually create the Green Bank of San Francisco. Um, additionally, we've um, added the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development and the Department of Homeless Services to our um, Green Finance Working Group, and they've been uh, invaluable thus far. Um, we're still developing an RFP for a consultant to assist with uh, how the Green Bank will access the greenhouse gas reduction funds being administered by the EPA. And we're also consulting with the uh, Green Finance Working Group on uh, state RFIs, state level RFIs about, sorry, requests for information about um, uh, from the iBank and from the uh, California Energy Commission, um, both related to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, additionally, uh, I've prepared a, a brief memo on an updated cost for pre, uh, associated with pre-opening um, of the Green Bank. And these are uh, items that would be needed, that we would need before we funded and capitalized the Green Bank. And uh, there's a short memo on that, but um, in brief, that um, in order for the city attorney's office to prepare the ordinance that includes the corporate documents of the San Francisco Green Bank. They've requested um, funding to hire an outside uh, legal counsel. And um, the estimate for that is approximately $300,000. Um, additionally, uh, part of the reinvestment working group's plans for um, a municipal financial corporation, which we're calling the Green Bank, included hiring um, and uh, searching for a CEO 
to come on before the uh, um, Green Bank starts. So this individual, the CEO, would help us in its creation. Um, after talking to um, uh, banking experts uh, in the past month, uh, I've developed a um, cost estimate for how much it would actually cost to, uh, for the city to hire this individual before we open the Green Bank. So assuming um, a, a 12-month salary of $400,000, um, a benefits package of 50% or $200,000, and a, a placement firm's fee or headhunting of 35%, the total to hire um, and staff a CEO in San Francisco for 12 months will be $740,000. I've also included similar estimates for a uh, controller of the Future Green Bank and the cred a chief credit officer of the uh, Future Green Bank. Um, additionally, we will likely need uh, federal and state level coordination for funding streams available both from the EPA and other federal agencies uh, related to the Inflation Reduction Act and um, someone at the state level basically to do the same thing but for the state grants and, and programs that are also being administered as part of the um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, but at the state level. And based off discussions with green banking experts, both of the, each of those will approximately cost the city $150,000. Um, and I've also included an estimate for how much city staff capacity would need to be increased to actually manage these um, uh, consultants. Uh, so the total for that is $500,000. However, the consultant fees are probably closer to $150,000 each. Um, and the purpose of this is this, these numbers are constantly being updated, and I'm uh, happy to accept um, more information or uh, further details on, on any of these costs, and I'll certainly be providing updates on this memo in the future when I receive that information. But uh, the information that we have available to us, this is our current estimate for pre-opening costs for the Green Bank. And I would say that the, the two main, in, in order, uh, priority order, the first would be the city attorney's uh, outside legal uh, fees, so that $300,000 um, table in table one, and um, the, the CEO themselves uh, for uh, the management uh, pre-opening costs, so that $750,000 number. Any questions on that brief summary on updated costs to the Green Bank? Thank you so much, Mr. Samurai. I wonder if any of those costs um, about coordination could be folded into any other city positions that already exist. Has that been uh, looked at? Um, it, there, there's certainly potential for that. Um, whenever the city hires a consultant to do something for us, we would need additional staff time to manage that contract um, and that information and make sure it goes to the appropriate departments. Um, these are certainly um, the higher end of the estimates. I didn't want to come out here and give you small numbers and come back in a few months with a much larger ask. So it, it's certainly possible that a lot of this, some of this could be folded into current uh, staff positions. Um, however, there is a need for an for outside expertise, specifically when it comes to green banking, as it's a, a pretty small field in the United States that's hopefully certainly growing this year with um, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. But to position San Francisco in a way to be able to access all these different programs, um, and some of them are grants, some of them are loans, in a timely way to make us competitive, we would need some of this outside uh, expertise uh, at the very least.
Thank you. Commissioner Singh. I actually had a question about the, the green financing study. So um, it's great that to see work that you're working with, um, that the working group is working with MoCD and the Department of Homelessness Services. Um, one thing I think that's increasingly coming up in, in discussions, not just in San Francisco, but all over the state and possibly the country, um, is that, you know, the concern that, like, decarbonizing homes is going to lead to displacement. Um, that those like costs are going to be passed through, et cetera. And I know this is kind of difficult right now in terms of um, right right now. There's not a ton of I'm trying to be diplomatic. There's not a ton of money going to the sort of acquisition side of things in SF, right? Um, in terms of acquiring housing, but this is kind of one of those topics that keeps coming up in terms of like taking housing off of the market, right? It, making it afford permanently affordable, stabilizing those tenants, and then decarbonizing or electrifying at the same time, right? That's something that we're gonna, that's a model that we're gonna need to pursue. Um, and I was wondering if there had been any discussion of that and give it with the understanding that like right now, I believe most CD is kind of deprioritizing um, spending their funds on acquisition compared to production. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the, great things about the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund and the entirety of the Inflation Reduction Act is um, the White House's Just Justice 40 initiative, which basically mandates that a minimum of 40% of all of these programs have to go to low-income and disadvantaged communities. Specifically within the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, two of the funds we're hoping to apply for as the San Francisco Green Bank are uh, the NCIF and CCIA. Uh, the NCIF, 40% of that has to go to um, low, they're called LIDACs, uh, low income and disadvantaged communities, and 100% of the CCIA has to go to um, LIDACs, those low income communities. So um, one of the things we're working on and, and we're actually providing a comment to, to those state level RFIs is um, how do we make sure exactly what you said, that we can invest in these low income communities and also um, have it pencil out for the Green Bank itself. Um, and uh, Jeremy has a few comments on that. Yeah, it's a great question. And just to add, that was um, a lot of our discussion with uh, MoCD and in the conversation with the Green Financing Working Group was, I think they're really struggling with um, this, like the burden of building decarbonization on top of you know the mandate they have to create as much affordable housing as possible with the limited funding streams. Um, and so they really, you know, had some tough questions for us about this this concept of of using the the NCIF and CCIA funds for loans for building electrification of affordable housing, and you know their number one mandate is you know what's the funding source to pay back these loans? We're not going to put this burden on our, our low-income affordable housing tenants to, to have to pay back. And that's absolutely a puzzle that we've brought back to um, the, the coalitions, the na nationwide coalitions that are applying for these funds to understand their program design better of, of how this is all going to pencil out. Um, and um, about the, you know, the issue of like displacement and the impact on tenants of, of building electrification is, is something else that was top of mind for MoCD. And they're looking at, at kind of grouping their, their housing into just sort of different categories of, of you know, what's readiest for building electrification. Um, one thing they're talking about is if you know they have a lot of buildings that have gone through big rehabs recently and they don't want to come back to those tenants and and do a whole nother process after they've already been been through that displacement and burden of construction um and so 
yeah, I think they're going to be looking at kind of grouping their their buildings into uh, ones that make the most sense to prioritize for electrification. I think particularly like if if a, a building is already has other work being scheduled, um, we want to look at is there a way that we can can bundle this electrification work with that. And um, there's a lot of opportunities with the, these federal funds to 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 subsidize some of that work, particularly the the solar for all program is the third fund of the greenhouse gas reduction fund. Um, and that's a grant-based program that's for adding rooftop solar, um, and it also allows for some of those funds to go for um, to fixing up roofs that that aren't ready for um, for solar panels. So I think that's a great opportunity to look at affordable housing that maybe has a leaky roof or an old roof that needs replacing. Can we get some of this federal solar for all funding to to both repair that roof and add solar um, and you know other electrification upgrades along the process? So. Um, yeah, definitely a tricky um, needle to thread with, um, you know, all of the these requirements and the limit, limited funding sources. And so, um, yeah, I think that's going to take further conversations with, with MoCD and the city and with the national firm, national groups that are going to be receiving these greenhouse gas reduction funds to try to figure out what's the capital stack that makes this all pencil out and, and also making sure that we're, we're thinking about the, the tenants. I appreciate that. Thank you both. Oh. Um, so just to, this is a national problem. This isn't just something we're dealing here locally. Um, a recent study from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory um, titled Residential Solar Adopter Income and Demogra Demographic Trends um, from November 2022 showed that across all U.S. solar adopters in 2021, only 22% had household incomes under 80% of the area median income. And a, a review of all states, all 50 states showed that in 2021, um, Hispanic, Latino voter, um, residents and black uh, households are underrepresented relative to the general population in each state. So this isn't just something we're dealing with here, it's something we're dealing with as an ad, at a national problem. And something that the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund is trying to take care of, but it still needs further development, which goes back to those expert consultant um, that we would need to actually get the greenhouse gas reduction funds and use them in a way to actually help these communities. On the note of um, Commissioner Singh's um, uh, well-founded concern for tenants, I've been thinking, you know, what, what is the, the least intrusive but most impactful ways to um, more efficiently use our energy, decarbonize, and these are these. I'm not sure how they fit into the entire um, greenhouse gas reduction fund framework. But you know, weatherization. We were talking about roofs and and getting new roofs and for solar panels. But windows, drafty windows. Are, you know, if you if you replace people's windows and there's there's a whole level of red tape around that. I know in the city. But um, I imagine we would have customers save a lot of money, be able to somehow work it out to pay, make sure that those uh, capital costs are eventually covered by the savings. Um, and same goes for, for example, induction stovetops. Um, you know, very, very, uh, uh, the most least intrusive way to reduce our carbon footprint make our dwellings more livable, affordable, energy efficient, all of that. Um, and so um, I'm curious to, to hear how maybe 
less intrusive methods, uh, especially to tenants, can work out. And I know that one of the, the private corporations that are leading a lot of the cities that have committed to decarbonize their buildings, block power, it seems like their, their, their way of making all of this pencil out is, is capitalizing on the savings in the long term. And so I wonder if we, we can look at that and that being a, a basis for how all of this financially works out on top of the, the grants and everything else. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much to Mr. Samurai and Executive Officer Pollock. I'm going to now open this up for public comment, and speakers will have two minutes. Members of the public wish to provide public comment should line up to speak now. Seeing no one here, we will go to our remote call-in system. Uh, Jaime is checking to see if we have any callers. And Madam Vice Chair, we have no callers. Thank you. Seeing no public speakers, comment is now closed. Madam Clerk, can you please call item number four? And for the record, there was no action taken on item number three. Item number four is the authorization for the executive officer to develop and issue a request for proposals for a municipal housing agency study. Members of the public who wish to provide comment on this item should line up to speak or press star three if you are joining us remotely when public comment is called for this matter. Madam Vice Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And now we will discuss the authorization for executive officer to develop the RFP for municipal housing agency study. Commissioner Preston, would you like to make any remarks? Thank you, Chair, uh, Chair Fielder. So um, colleagues, before us, uh, this item uh, today is um, an important and, and I think necessary step uh, toward making our city a place where working people can actually afford to live. Um, and I want to give a little bit of background, and then I know we'll hear more um, uh, from Mr. Pollock, I believe. Um, but, but the background here is as part of the budget negotiations in fiscal year 22-23, um, our office working very closely with then budget chair uh, Hillary Ronan uh, agreed to a, uh, a package that included funds to jumpstart uh, production and rehabilitation of affordable housing. That included uh, site acquisitions, teacher housing, um, and public housing repairs, um, as well as funds to envision the future of city-owned and operated um, municipal housing. And today we're uh, moving forward with the piece of that, which was the $300,000 allocation, to really study, um, get, uh, bring together uh, expertise and community input, hold public forum on municipal housing, and determine, um, among other things, the recommended structure of uh, a municipal housing agency pilot uh, with the goal of creating mixed income um, city-owned housing. Um, this move is uh, uh, predicated on clear mandates from the people of San Francisco, and I really want to emphasize uh, the broad support for this kind of effort. In 2020, with the support of 74% of San Francisco voters, and, and let me say that again because I think for those of us who work on elections issues, that's uh, 
a, a kind of an eye-popping number, and you know, you're, you're, you consider it a landslide victory in a ballot measure if you, if you win by double digits, 55 to 45, and literally 74% of San Francisco voters voted to authorize, specifically to authorize the creation of up to 10,000 units of municipally owned housing, something that's otherwise prohibited under state law um, unless you get local voter uh, approval. And, I, and part of why I emphasize that is to, to, to just, uh, we talk often about San Francisco uh, exceptionalism and things that are, are maybe different in the city and got lots of opinions on that. Um, but I don't think there are a lot of jurisdictions uh, where you could put on the ballot the question of whether we should create 10,000 units of municipally owned, publicly owned housing in your city and have 74% of the voters uh, say absolutely. Um, that same year, voters didn't just say they wanted uh, up to 10,000 units of municipally owned housing. At the same year, voters approved uh, Proposition I, raising the transfer tax on the highest end uh, real estate transfers, over $10 million, uh, to help fund social housing developments uh, to help fund new initiatives to help us meet our affordable housing goals. Um, voters approved the necessary authorization, passed the, met the, the measure to create new funds um, to support affordable housing pilot programs, um, and now we're creating the roadmap for what municipal housing uh, could look like in, in San Francisco. Um, so I, I very much appreciate in, in, uh, the, the mandate from San Francisco voters and their willingness to not just approve in theory these units, but also to approve the taxes uh, that can pay for this. Uh, the RFP that is before us uh, seeks to find a qualified party to perform the following, to review existing uh, literature and studies on municipal housing and models to make publicly owned housing possible, to uh, propose and analyze potential structural and departmental changes to facilitate city-owned housing, uh, to convene at least three focus groups comprised of uh, San Francisco affordable housing experts, tenant associations, relevant uh, government agencies, labor unions, including uh, city employees unions, um, and nonprofit and community-based organizations uh, that uplift uh, the voices, concerns, and uh, solutions of historically disenfranchised communities and communities of color in particular. Um, the RFP also seeks for the qualified party to produce a final report um, that both defines and outlines a structure for municipal housing uh, enterprise, provides recommendations on centering tenant perspectives in uh, execution and structure of uh, the agency for the pilot phase. Um, also to convene and staff a working group of local housing experts with the goal of soliciting feedback and input for the final report, um, and uh, finally to hold a symposium of experts on housing in San Francisco and experts on municipal housing, uh, both uh, domestically and globally. Um, as the city takes on the new and ambitious goals that we are all familiar with, uh, to produce housing that's affordable to working class people and their families in San Francisco, one thing that is very clear 
is that the existing models will not get us to these goals. They can take steps toward those goals, but they, we will not achieve those goals if we are simply looking at existing models. We need to add more tools to our toolbox, and I firmly believe um, that we can and must add municipal housing, not at the expense of, but in addition to the existing affordable housing infrastructure that our city has created. This was the promise of Prop I uh, and Prop K in 2020. I believe the mandate uh, from San Francisco voters has very broad support and I look forward to continuing uh, to push this forward. This study in particular uh, will help us chart a path and socialize a concept that has been successfully done in cities across the world um, and whose time has definitely come here in San Francisco. So I urge your support and looking forward to this discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much, Commissioner Preston. And now we'll hear from Executive Officer Paula. Sorry, Policy Analyst Khaled Samurai. Hello, Commissioners. Thank you um, again. <clears throat> like the Supervisor said, um, part of our LAFCO's uh, fiscal year 2023-24, um, we are studying municipal housing services. And um, for this municipal housing agency pilot, um, I am recommending that um, the, the commission allow the executive officer to develop and issue an RFP for a consultant to conduct the municipal housing agency study. I have attached to uh, my memo a draft of that RFP. Um, and <clears throat> really there'll be two main goals for the study, to educate the board of supervisors and the LAFCO commissioners um, on the viability of um, a municipal housing uh, uh, agency. Um, and I, sorry, I forgot, the, also the San Francisco Housing Stability Oversight Board. And this education will come in the form of a report that I've outlined um, in my memo. Uh, it's a pretty comprehensive request for an analysis that goes outside of the United States borders and, and also looks at other places that have done this successfully. Um, and the second goal will be uh, to educate the public uh, through a symposium on municipal housing um, that's also included as part of uh, this draft RFP. Um, the timeline, uh, we're hoping to, uh, after we receive your approval, to finalize and um, issue the RFP today, um, uh, finalize the scope um, and issue the RFP next week. Uh, we have a deadline for proposals at the end of February. Um, we hope to finalize and approve the contract mid-March and with a project kickoff date um, also in mid-March. We're estimating that this work will um, take approximately seven months to complete and that uh, our goal is to have the symposium um, before the end of this year. Thank you so much, Mr. Samurai. Any questions or comments from commissioners? Commissioner Singh. Yeah, I just want to say I'm incredibly excited for this. Um, I've, you know, had the pleasure. I was just, while you were um, giving your report, I was also listing just all of the different cities and states that are basically exploring municipal housing in some way, whether it's a public developer, whether it's like a state authority or whatever, trying to establish it. Um, and I listed, let's see, um, 
three places where it already is up, about to be up and running, uh, which would be uh, Seattle, Atlanta, and Los Angeles. And then uh, the rest of it was New York, Hawaii, Rhode Island, Mar Maryland, Chicago, Massachusetts, and Michigan, possibly. Washington, D.C. is act actively like doing, put, it has a bill forward right now, um, which I had the pleasure of testifying for. So um, yeah, I, I'm really, really excited to see San Francisco, you know, we got it. We got some people to catch up to at this point. So, um, I don't have any questions right now. I actually, I did um, want to make sure. I don't know if this is the right point to do it, but I, I think when I was reading through the RFP, there was something about like a minimum of three. There was like a public engagement where it was like a minimum of three meetings, right? Or There's uh, six meetings with local um, okay. housing experts uh, required and those have to be open to the public and, and receive public comment. There's also a minimum of three focus groups of housing experts separate from those meetings that um, to solicit information about San Francisco for whomever the consultant will be. Yeah, that was it. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying we need to amend that or anything, but uh, I do just want to make a comment that I have the feeling that we're probably going to even need more than three focus groups. So um, having that minimum is there. I could see getting to like five or six even, but yeah. Um, absolutely. We're, we're hoping this is the floor and that in the competitive bidding um, we'll receive applicants who um, highlight even more focus groups. Thanks. That was it. Thank you, Commissioner Singh. Um, I'm flanked by some of the most uh, amazing and dedicated housing advocates in the city. So um, much thanks to my colleagues on this board for continuing to work for alternative models like municipal housing. You know, we rely so much on the private market to um, reach our housing goals, and it just hasn't worked. Decades and decades of this kind of status quo has allowed us to fall severely behind in delivering for low-income, working-class families. Workers are not able to live here, and so I'm really proud to support this study, and municipal housing is, is going to be our future. So thank you so much to Commissioner Dean Preston for, for spearheading this. All right. Um, seeing no other questions or comments, I'll now open this up for public comment, and speakers will have two minutes. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and would like to speak, please press star three. Now we don't have anyone here in the chamber, so we will go to Jaime, who is checking. I'm Madam Vice Chair, there are no callers. Thank you. All right, seeing no public speakers, public comment is now closed. On item number four, is there a motion to authorize the executive officer to issue an RFP for the Municipal Housing Agency study? So moved. Second. Moved by Commissioner Preston, seconded by Commissioner Williams. Madam Clerk, can you please call the roll? On item number four, Commissioner Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Commissioner Williams. Aye. Williams, aye. Vice Chair Fielder. Aye. Fielder, aye. There are three ayes. All right, so thank you, Executive Officer Pollock, Commissioner Preston. Madam Clerk, can you please call items number five? Item number five is authorization to amend the legal services agreement with Richards, Watson, and Gershon to extend the term to January 31st, 2026 and increase the not to exceed amount to 325000 Thank you. We'll now hear from Executive Officer Jeremy Pollock. 
Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Jeremy Pollock, LAFCO Executive Officer. Um, so this item is an extension of our, our contract with Richards, Watson, and Gershon, who are serving as our, our legal counsel with Indersing as a lead counsel. Um, this agreement came out of an RFP that was conducted back in 2018. Um, the original term of the contract was for four years, uh, beginning in January 2019 through 2023. Uh, last, um, last year we extended the contract one year to, that is now set to expire at the end of the month and this proposed second amendment would extend it for two more years um, and increasing the not to exceed amount. Uh, the, the other change the contract makes, it makes is also increasing uh, the hourly billing rate by 10 to 12 percent which um, is less than inflation and, and feels like a reasonable increase to us. Um, uh, one other change not listed on the slide here is that it updates the terms and conditions around data security and privacy in keeping with uh, the standard terms and conditions from the city and county of San Francisco. Um, and uh, lastly, I would just note that our legal expenses have been coming under budget the last couple of years. We're currently under budget for this year. So um, unless there's, you know, unanticipated extensive legal work, um, this increase in the billing rate won't affect our, our budget, which has stayed steady at $45,000 a year for, for legal services. Um, and uh, happy to answer any questions and recommend you approve this and uh, would also keep in mind that um, the best practice would be to consider doing a new RFP uh, at the end of this contract and to, to renew the competitive solicitation in the future for uh, beyond 2026. Thank you for your presentation. Colleagues, any comments or questions? I'll now open this up for public comment and speakers will have two minutes. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on item number five um, should press star three if you're joining us remotely. We don't have anyone here in the chamber, so Jaime's checking to see if we have any callers on the line. Pausing to check, and Madam Chair, Madam Vice Chair, there are no speakers. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Seeing no public speakers, public comment is now closed. On item number five, is there a motion to authorize the executive officer to amend the legal services agreement? So moved. Moved by Commissioner Preston. <clears throat> Second. Seconded by Commissioner Williams. Madam Clerk, can you please call the roll? Yes, on item number five, Commissioner Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Commissioner Williams. Aye. Williams, aye. Vice Chair Fielder. Aye. Fielder, aye. There are three ayes. Moving on to um, item number six, Madam Clerk. Yes, item number six is the executive officer's report, including updates to the Midtown Park apartment study, a 2023 year in review, and the forward calendar. All right, we'll now hear from Executive Officer Jeremy Pollock and policy analyst Khaled Samurai. Great, thank you. Um, as the, the clerk indicated this, there's three items in the, in the, the packet for this. Um, the, one of them is the LAFCO 2023 year in review. That's just a brief memo summarizing our work from last year. Uh, I'm not going to go over that, but welcome any uh, feedback you all might have on that. Uh, and I'll turn it over to Mr. Samurai to give you an update on the uh, Midtown Park Apartments project. Hello, uh, commissioners. Um, our other study on municipal housing services it, this year is the Midtown Park Apartments study. Um, and I'll just summarize, it's, it's up, already up, uh, how we got here. Um, in April 2023, the Board of Supervisors uh, introduced a resolution requesting LAFCO 
um, to study the city-owned Midtown Park apartments. Um, in April 2023, LAFCO issued a request for proposals for consultants to conduct the study. Uh, in June 2023, uh, LAFCO should intend to award to Steve Suzuki and Fernando Marti and their subcontractors. And in July of last year, the LAFCO commissioners passed a resolution authorizing the executive officer to enter into a contract with Mr. Suzuki and Mr. Marti. Um, included in this study will be a facilitation of six uh, meetings with Midtown tenants to develop and uh, draft a collective agreement. Uh, essentially what they would like to see in the future of Midtown. Um, I'm happy to say that our first meeting will be tomorrow morning um, at Gateway High School. It's open to the public and you're all welcome to come. Um, additionally, uh, the scope of the contract we have will also includes um, a property conditions assessment to assess the current condition and identify future physical needs. And uh, all of this will um, be finalized in a report that we will present to, uh, to you. Um, since we started the contract uh, with uh, Mr. Suzuki and Mr. Marti, uh, LAFCO staff and consultants have met with the mayors of Office of Housing and Community Development, MOHCD, and their property management firm, Calco Properties. Uh, LAFCO entered into a license agreement directly with Calco to be able to access the Midtown Park apartments um, under the advice of the city attorney's office. Um, MOHCD staff have provided LAFCO with historical uh, documents on Midtown that I will be publishing on the LAFCO webpage um, and making a Midtown page specifically for all these documents, as well as our final report. Um, and yeah, like I said, our first engagement meeting is, is tomorrow morning. Happy to take any questions on Midtown. Thank you, Mr. Samurai. Any questions, comments from colleagues? All right. Oh, sorry, Commissioner Singh. Yeah, I, I don't have any uh, questions at present. Just wanted to say thank you again and very glad to see this moving forward. It's been a long time coming. Echoing that, thank you, Mr. Samurai. And all right, now Executive Officer Pollock. Uh, I would say, uh, pull up the slide here. The last thing uh, in the in the executive officer's report is just a forward calendar with the projected items for the next two meetings. Um, uh, in March uh, 15th meeting, we'll be having the proposed uh, budget and work plan approval. Um, we're looking forward to also, we've invited the Center for Public Enterprise, who's a, a policy think tank that's done a lot of work around the Inflation Reduction Act and direct pay provisions. Um, gonna be working with the SFPUC and, and Department of the Environment to coordinate that. Um, direct pay is, is essentially it's um, a change to the tax credits for renewable power that previously was only accessible by by private companies that but now uh, municipal governments can now get that that tax rebate which um, makes it uh, a lot more financially feasible for cities and counties like us to to own our own uh, renewable energy facilities um, and then hoping to also have the uh, the authorization of the the agreement with the municipal housing consultant. Um, and then in May we will have uh, the the final study on the battery energy storage systems and the the final fiscal year 24-25 budget approval. And that completes completes our report. Thank you, Executive Officer Pollock. I'll now open up the section for public comment, and speakers will have two minutes. 
Members of the public wish to provide public comment, and you're join if you are joining us remotely, you should press star three now. Seeing no one here in the chamber, we will go to Jaime, who is checking our public comment line, pausing to see if we have any speakers. And Madam Vice Chair, there are no callers. Thank you. Seeing no public speakers, public comment is now closed. Madam Clerk, can you please call item number seven? Yes, and for the record, there was no action taken on item number six. Item number seven is general public comment. Members of the public who wish to provide comment should press star three if you're joining us remotely. We don't have anyone here in the chamber joining us today, so we'll go to our public comment line. Jaime is checking, and Madam Vice Chair, there are no speakers. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, seeing no public speakers, public comment is now closed. Madam Clerk, can you please call item number seven? Item number eight is future agenda items. Colleagues, any other future agenda items to note? All right, let's open this up for public comment. You know, in here in the chamber again, we will go to our public comment line. Jaime is checking for the last time today. And Madam Vice Chair, we have no callers. Seeing no public speakers, public comment is now closed. There's no action to take on this matter. Madam Clerk, is there any other business before us today? That concludes our business for today. There being no further business, we are adjourned.